I greet you this morning in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who is our creator, redeemer, and sustainer. It's so good to see everybody here in the Faith and Arts Center. I know we also have folks who are joining us online. As you travel this summer, perhaps on vacation, we've invested a lot of resources in online worship, and while we want you here personally, if you are out of town, we hope you'll join us online as we worship God together. Our summer worship series is I Believe And we're exploring the basic beliefs of the Christian faith expressed in the Apostles' Creed. And this morning, we are affirming our faith in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Our scripture lesson comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 17. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we might also share in his glory. Amen. Last week, we discovered that the word creed comes from the Latin credo, and it simply means, I believe. A creed is a succinct statement of beliefs and an affirmation of faith. When you read the Bible, you discover there are a number of different creeds in both the Old and the New Testament, and the church has also created creeds over the millennia. We are focusing on the Apostles' Creed. And the next time you have a United Methodist Church hymnal in your hands, you'll notice there are actually two different variants of the creed in the back. There's the traditional version, which we normally use here at Northside, and there's an ecumenical version as well. When you read it next time, also notice there's an asterisk and go to the bottom because there's a phrase we typically leave out of the creed, and that's your homework for the coming week. Uh, Most likely, the Apostles' Creed emerged out of the church's worship together, and it came from a baptismal formula, that when confirmands were brought into the church, they were asked a series of questions, including, do you believe in God the Father? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son, and do you believe in the Holy Spirit? The creed we use today was finalized in about the 7th century A.D. That means for centuries, the Apostles' Creed has been a central part of the church's liturgy and worship, and we recite it every week here at Northside in both our traditional as well as our contemporary services. The Apostles' Creed begins with a very basic statement about God's nature and God's identity. We ask the question, who is God? We also ask the much more personal question, who is my God? And the Creed assists us in those answers. The very first statement is a very pithy theological statement that we believe in God, the Father, Almighty, 
maker of heaven and earth. And we're going to look at each of those four components in turn because each one is a facet into God's identity and God's nature. The creed begins with the most fundamental of affirmations as a religious people, we believe in God. And that statement divides the world into believers and into non-believers. One of the resources I'm using during the series is a book titled The Creed by Dr. Luke Timothy Johnson, who's a Woodruff professor of New Testament Candler School of Theology. In the introduction, he makes this statement. The believer, that means you and me, affirms that there is a mystery at the heart of the world, a mystery that does not yield to direct examination, that refuses to be measured or manipulated, but suggests its presence in every single thing that we taste, touch, smell, and see. And the believer dwells in the world that is magical and mythic. That in essence, God's presence is all about us with those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. Well, this fundamental belief in God grows out of our Old Testament heritage as a Judeo-Christian people. Uh, last week, we considered Deuteronomy chapter 6 as the basic affirmation of faith of Judaism. And Jesus himself identified it as the greatest commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. It's known as the Shema, which means to hear. And it's been recited throughout the millennia by faithful Jews. But it is both a theological statement and a personal commitment. First of all, when you read the pages of Scripture, and if you haven't taken Disciple 1, you ought to because it walks you all the way through the Hebrew Scriptures and then the New Testament. That was an advertisement. What you discover is this emerging, evolving understanding of who God is. And the Jews understood God to be the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, that he was their tribal, personal God among other gods. But then Moses has this encounter where he sees that a bush is aflame, but it's not consumed by the fire, and he turns aside and encounters God. And the Lord wants to send him to Egypt to deliver the people out of slavery. And Moses says, you know... When I go, they're probably going to ask who sent me. What's your name? And God says, I am who I am. In Hebrew, that's translated as Yahweh. In, in previous decades, we sometimes translate it as Jehovah. And it simply means, I am. God is God was, God will be, God overarches space and time. God is. And what you see the Jews continue to understand and to realize is that God is not just a God among gods. He's not the top God. He's the only God. If you remember your religion courses in high school or college, it's called radical monotheism. There is but one God. 
And oftentimes in popular culture, we see dualism portrayed where there is an equal and opposite good and bad. But that's not a biblical understanding of God. The Lord God Almighty reigns and rules over all God. But that is not only a theological conviction, it's also a personal commitment to serve God and God alone. And there are a lot of folks in the world that will give lip service to the fact that there may well be a God, but then they live as if there is not. And there are times, even within the walls of the church, that we are tempted not to radical monotheism, but to polytheism instead of worshiping many gods. Because you don't want to be too radical, you don't want to be too fanatic, and oftentimes we try to slide by by saying, I'm going to worship God and something else. Fill in the blank. And the moment you add that word and after God, we have entered into the world of idolatry because God will not serve, will not allow us to serve him and anything else. That God calls for our ultimate allegiance and devotion to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I believe in God. And then listen to the qualifiers and how God is further defined. I believe in God, the Father. We use that language so often in the church that I think it loses its radical impact to make the statement that the Lord God is our heavenly Father. We see that portrayed in Jesus' ministry in that intimate relationship that Jesus shared with his heavenly Father. And the disciples began to realize that Jesus was God's Son in the world. And next week we're going to talk about our belief in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. And through Christ's life, death, and resurrection... God formed a new covenant, a new reality, a new testament, and invited us into that same life-giving relationship. There are a number of different images that are used for what it means to become God's people. But Romans chapter 8 that we've read from today uses the imagery of adoption. That God adopts us into God's family and we're given a spirit that enables us to come before the throne of God and cry out, Abba, Aramaic, which uh, New International Version translates as Father, but it has an even more intimate aspect to it of being able to come to God and say, Daddy, imagine. That's the type of relationship we have with God. A few moments earlier, uh, Reverend Angela led us in the Lord's Prayer. And it begins with the words, our Father. And I want you to think about both of those words because both are critical. Father, our understanding of who God is in relationship to us as loving, caring, gracious, merciful. But it's our Father. And you don't have to have taken biology very recently to know that if you're you have the same father I have, that makes us a brother and sister in Jesus Christ. And you get to pick your friends, you're stuck with your family. Which means when we become Christians, we are a part of a bigger family. We don't get to pick. We don't get to choose. All we get to do is love. God, the Father. But then listen to the next word. I believe in God, the Father, Almighty. 
I want you to think for a moment about the juxtaposition of those two titles right next to each other. Father and Almighty. In theological terms, that describes God's eminence, God's closeness, God's presence in our lives, that He's God's accessible to us, and God's transcendence. God's overarching nature and power, a God that is so great we cannot begin to comprehend who God is. It is only as God reveals the Spirit to us that we're able to understand or at least approximate the height and width and depth of God's love and God's grace. If those words, eminence and transcendence, don't resonate with your heart and soul and vocabulary, Think about how we express that in our hymnology, in the songs that we sing in church. I grew up, and even as a child, learned this first one. This is my Father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings, and round me rings the music of the spheres. God's eminence, God's presence all about us. But in the next hymn, we might sing, immortal, invisible, God only wise in light and accessible, hid from our eyes. We can sing, he walks with me and he talks with me along life's narrow way. And in the next breath, sing, how great thou art. God the Father, almighty. This affirmation also speaks into one of the greatest theological struggles we have as a people of faith. And it's the question of evil, which typically gets posed with a question that begins with the word Why? Why do bad things happen to good people? And Frederick Buechner is extremely helpful to me in this discussion. He said that we as Christians believe in three things. We believe God is all good. I believe in God the Father. We believe God is all powerful. I believe in God the Almighty. But the third one is bad things happen. And Beatner goes on to say, you can reconcile any two of those three statements, but when you put them all three together, this is Bill Birch's paraphrase, you've got a theological mess. And if you read the Gospels, there were a couple of three times it would have been very natural for Jesus to explain the whole thing to us. But he chose not to. And what Beatner's final statement on the topic is not terribly satisfying intellectually, but it speaks to my soul. He said, Christianity ultimately offers no theoretical solution at all. It merely points to the cross and says that practically speaking, there is no evil so dark or obscene that God cannot turn it to the good. And what we affirm is that God is with us. One of my favorite chapters of Scripture is Romans chapter 8. We've read from it today, and it talks about how in Jesus Christ, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That language is very familiar to us. It starts in the beginning, uh, Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created. And we believe that God is the creator of all. And I oftentimes say in Bible studies, if you read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, just three chapters of the Bible, 
It contains a lot of what the Judeo-Christian heritage teaches us. That God is creator of the cosmos. From subatomic particles to galactic grandeur. And God saw that it was good. And science is not a challenge to faith. Science simply details all the minutia of what God did in putting the cosmos together. That God created humanity. And we're made in God's image. That the first job we were given was to take care of the world and each other. And there's something fundamentally wrong with the world because of free will. That God the Almighty chose to limit because of God the Father out of love to give us choice. To give us the opportunity to decide. And sometimes we choose poorly. But it's not simply God created the world and like a clock worker who made a clock, wound it up, and then walked away. God is constantly sustaining creation. Every moment is an act of God sustaining creation. To put this much more personally, every breath we take is a gift from God. And if you were like I am, sometimes I, you know, I read the actuarial tables. I think I probably got to mid-80s, give or take, plus or minus. I apparently missed my midlife crisis because I'm not going to live to 130. I'll let you do the math. But if every breath is a gift, that means every day is a gift. Every time we wake up in the morning is a new act of creation. And to recognize what a wondrous present that is given to us by God. And we're called to live that way. And it's not only sustaining creation, God continues to create. And it always strikes me when you read the Genesis account, it says we were created in the image of God. What was God doing when we were created in God's image? God was creating. Every time we create, we're acting out our God-given heritage. We are co-creating with God when we make a marriage, when we raise a family, when we make a living, when we close a business deal, when we create a Bible study, when we come together and make praise before God. We are creating with God and fulfilling who and what God created us to be. Dr. Luke Timothy Johnson reflects on the radical nature of what it means to come together as a people of God and to affirm our faith with one another. And I want to share this with you because I think it's profound. Every Sunday, millions of Christians recite the creed. Some sleepwalk through it, thinking about other things. Some puzzle over the strange language. Some find offense in what it might seem to say, and a few might approximate understanding the reality of what they're doing. In a world that celebrates individuality, we're doing something together. In an age that avoids commitment, we pledge ourselves to a set of convictions and to each other. In a culture that rewards novelty and creativity, we use words by others written long ago. 
In a society where wisdom changes by the moment, I love this next part, we claim there are some truths so critical they have to be repeated over and over and over again. In a throwaway consumerist world, we accept, preserve, and continue tradition. And reciting the creed in worship is one of the most radical, countercultural things that the church does. This morning, we join with Christians across space and across time, and we affirm that we believe in God, the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Let us pray. Gracious God, we come before you this day to sing your praises and to celebrate your greatness, but also to recognize that you make yourself known, that you have chosen to enter into covenant with your people, and that in Jesus Christ we encounter your love, your grace, your mercy, and your salvation. We thank you for your eminence, your presence all about us, and for your transcendence as we worship you as God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Amen.